You are listening to the In Context Podcast. Hello and welcome to the In Context Podcast. Uh, this week we have a good friend of mine, it's Chris Davison. He is a church planter uh, working alongside 20 schemes in a place called Merkinch in Inverness. Hello Chris, good to have you on board brother. Yeah, how are you, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thanks mate. So Chris, where are you at Merkinch? I'm not sure many people will have heard of that place. Whereabouts is Merkinch and what is it like? Yeah, it's pretty close to Middle Earth. Uh, <laughs> where we are is in the north of Scotland, so um, uh, just outside Inverness, five, probably 10 minutes from the city centre of Inverness is where Merkinch is situated. And, and is that where you're from? Uh, no, I originally grew up in a place called Lochaber in a village called Cool. Um, <laughs> so I'm a Cooligan. <laughs> and uh, whereabouts is that? Uh, so that is, uh, so if Inverness is kind of centre to the highlands, there's the Caledonian Canal that cuts down like that. Port William's here. So basically I've moved 70 miles north right. from Port William to Inverness. Uh, but they're all kind of connected. Like a lot of the lads in our scheme, no guys from Cool and no people from Fort William. Right. Oh, so it's not a total alien move for you then? No, no. It's it's quite similar. Like, I, like the only difference is it's more uh, probably East Coast mm-hmm. compared to where I was, which was quite West Coast mentality. Um, so it's a wee bit more like that. But it's very much like Inverness is kind of like a hub for the highlands so you get like all the kind of cultures of the highlands here so island cultures here northern highland cultures here west coast east coast it's kind of like uh, a pool point for that all those kind of meeting cultures if you will it's funny because i I met a guy an uber driver when i was in edinburgh and uh i said oh was edinburgh the first place you came to (laughs) and he said no Inverness was, he'd been offered a job with Tesco, I think he was from Poland, and he came over with Tesco and he was shoved in the Tesco in Inverness, and he didn't know where he'd been sent. I think he <laughs> thought he'd been sent to Middle Earth. It's a city, but it's a, it's a baby city. Like it's, I think it's like 80,000 people. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But it, it, it is classed as a city, but it really, you know, it has a town kind of feel to it which is quite nice but it's funny because this uber driver couldn't wait to get out of inverness and down to the city of edinburgh but you trained for ministry in edinburgh and you couldn't wait to get out of edinburgh up to inverness could you so so where did you train and how did you get into ministry yeah oh uh, i won't spend too much time there because it's quite boring (laughs) but uh, i was uh, so i grew up in the village of cool uh, outside for a while my mum and dad um used to go to uh, like a, a charismatic church church of god pentecostal church so i grew up uh, in that church uh, around uh, that kind of theology and preaching and teaching and uh, even from like a really young age i kind of rejected everything that my parents were trying to impose on me <laughs> that's the way i saw it i was like you're you're forcing me to your will um, so like my mom and dad used to get us to come into their bedroom at night to pray, like just as a family. Uh, my brother and sister started to do it, but I never did. Um, so it was really like, I kind of just naturally rebelled the way I would say it. And my parents, like they're dynamite. They grew up in like a working class kind of environment, married at 18, lived with 
my grand for a few years till they got their own council house. But they really did imbibe kind of the Thatcherism of the, like, you know, work to become middle class. So my parents did do that. My mum worked three jobs when I was, we as my dad was doing work away, you know, so it was a a busy house. Uh, I can never remember our front door being locked at all. Because on the street of Grinkingi Street, where I stayed, my uncle, two uncles and my granny lived. So people were in and out of the house all the time. Do you know what I mean? It was just like, you get home and it's like your uncle who's looking after you because mum had to do a back shift or something like that. Mm. But in that kind of culture of busyness, culture of church, I kind of rebelled. I also hated school. Like, I was uh, severely dyslexic, which I didn't catch until kind of first year of high school so I went into high school like unable basically unable to read and write I remember in primary six still being unable to tie my shoelaces mm-hmm. I just fall miles behind so school was over for me before I even went into high school which made me kind of rebel more so I left school unofficially when I was about 14 15 <laughs> Just started going into town, uh, playing pool in the Jack and the Ben Nevis bar, these places with these old guys. <laughs> and then coming home uh, and uh, saying I was at school all day. And I used to get my sister to sign my absent sheets. Like she could forge my dad's signature. So she was a great ally in that. Uh, but basically, when I was 16, just getting really unhappy with life. Like felt like all my friends were in school. I wasn't. Felt totally disconnected, even from my family. And it was like a really bad summer. And I think my mum and dad saved up to send me to an SU camp, a mm. uh, scripture union camp. I think it was Lendrick Muir, which is uh, just south of where we are. And um, I remember going there, and I can't remember a talk. I just remember looking at it, the guys, the older guys, and thinking, what are you getting out of this? Like, you know, the leaders. Yeah. Like, why are you here? Like, I, I even asked one of them, so you've given up a week of your holiday to be here to speak to us? And he was like, yeah. Uh, and we just chatted, and what came across was their faith is not just something my family believes or my family friends believe. Mm. This is bigger than my wee village or the kind of, kind of culture I grew up in. This guy actually believes this, and he's from Glasgow or something like that. You know, it blew my mind. I remember that night just praying, like, um, Lord, um, just basic childish prayer at 16. Like, I want to love you. I want to trust you. I don't know why I don't. Like, you know, kind of that. It was kind of more like a conversation. But I just remember real peace coming over me for the first time I've ever experienced. Like, just that stillness would be the way I could say it. I was all, like... It was in a triple bunk bed, you know what I mean? It was like, <laughs> it was one of these uh, camps where they do everything on budget. Uh, but I went home and I would love to say like my life got better and I got plugged into a church, but it didn't. It just, it, things seemed to get worse. Just through a family issues and choices, my family kind of ended up homeless for a while. So I lived with some members of our extended family and it was just a messy time so I got even angrier but now my anger was like bitterness to God because <laughs> now I had someone to blame before it was just like the world but now it's like well if you are actually here this is your fault like that's the way I kind of assumed it as a child and uh, it wasn't until um, 
I met a local minister who invested in me and uh, asked me to come to like the man's Bible study. And I actually started sitting under the word of God consistently, regularly, that all that anger seemed to get addressed just slowly. That kind of the, like discipleship was the biggest thing missing in my life. If I had someone at 16 who actually invested in me, I, I don't know if I would have got that angry and better. But there was no, no culture of that in our churches when I was growing up. It was a, a culture of like conversion. Like, you know, you once you're converted, you're saved, that's it, everything's kind of done. You're a member. There was no like helping you work through your theology. There was none of that. Um, so basically when I met this minister and he grafted me into this church, that was the first time men started investing in me as a young man. And by that time I'd taken on an apprenticeship, was training to be a joiner, and my life started to map itself out a bit more. Um, and through just that discipleship, I started to grow my faith. And my brother phoned me from Edinburgh saying he met a girl, he was going to marry her. So I thought, oh, I'll go to Edinburgh for a couple of years, live with him just before he gets married one last time as brothers together. And I got plugged into a church called Crubbers Christian Centre. It's right in the centre of Edinburgh. So my brother and sister were going there. And they were very much a church like uh, had a really big view of mission, like world mission and being like serving in a local church. And what I started to see in my own life was I loved Bible studies. I loved discipleship more than joinery my love for joinery started to drop uh, it was just like a natural uh, thing that started happening and joinery is a great job good money no worries <laughs> you know what I mean? get paid every week it's banging uh, but just during that time that happened to me my mum started studying theology at Highland Theological College because my mum had a, a desire to be a chaplain within the NHS and I remember just phoning her all the time like what are you learning and just picking our brains and just being really hungry for that so i decided then to move back here and kind of following her footsteps to go to htc uh, but what happened was the housing crisis happened then and all like all jobs <laughs> dried up immediately at uh, the course that i was going to do and um, stopped like they, they stopped doing it because the funding wasn't there and I remember again, like that kind of old anger, bitterness coming up to me, especially one day where my parents live is like right outside Inverness and a bus comes every two hours. <laughs> so if you miss it, you've missed it. And I was sitting there and the bus didn't come and I was going to an interview at ScotMed or the co-op and um, to become a, a tell person or a shop assistant, I think they're called. And I remember, the bus not coming and I was raging and again that anger uh, came towards God like I even remember speaking out loud do you know that I only have 10 pounds 30 pence in my bank account and now I have to go and phone a taxi to come here to go to a stinking job I don't even want to do you know just kind of everything flowed out of me and then bus came around the corner and it was like making a really bad noise so I ran back and as I got on it the the, the driver, I'll never forget, he says, sorry, son, I'm stuck in second gear. And I said to him, I, so am I. <laughs> I just felt like my whole life was like at a stack, like I was getting nowhere fast. 
And I remember being on that bus and just the, again, like that peace from when I was uh, converted kind of washed over me again. And it was almost like the, the bus was a metaphor that it got me to the job interview on time. And it was almost like the Lord saying, I'll, it's my time. Like, I'll get you there. You're, you're going, but I'll get you there. So even my mom and dad said the night I came home from that interview, like the frustration had left me. I was kind of like, I'm going to get there. It's just going to take time. I'm not going to rush this because who am I to rush it anyway? Uh, the next year, the uh, access course started. I did that in secret because um, I never finished school. So I was a bit ashamed of can I do it? And I kind of used that to test myself. Um, I passed it and then applied to go to the Free Church College in Edinburgh. And that's what led me there, uh, which was, <laughs> it's great. It's, it's a time warp. It's an ivory tower. It's very unique uh, Edinburgh Theological Assembly, but it's great. And the pastors are, uh, the, pre the, the professors are all pastors. So I remember my first day in class and it was Greek 101. <laughs> and I was like pale white because I was like, I can barely do English. And uh, John Angus stood up and says, right, we all know what a noun is. And I put my hand up and I was just like, I'm actually not too sure what a noun is. <laughs> he, was, he just looked at me and was like, he changed gear quite quickly. He was like, all right. So he actually taught me English yeah. as well as another language. And uh, like, I'm so indebted to them. They did, they did, it was tough, it's brutal work. Um, like I was up to two in the morning, most mornings, just to try and keep at a solid sea. <laughs> Um, but the Lord sustained me through it, and that's where I was trained. Awesome. Mm. Well, you're in the, you're in the city. Uh, is it your brother and sister were there? You're, you're studying there. What led you back to Merkins then? <laughs> well, uh, in short, God. Mm -hmm. uh, a bit more convoluted would be Mez. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, during my studies, a uh, uh, ETS in Edinburgh, um, a guy called Neil McMillan done a class on church planting in our first year. Um, and uh, me and my flatmate at the time, who was Andy Longway, uh, just loved everything he was saying. It's like, it was totally new to me. I'd never heard, I always thought churches were old buildings from the 1800s. You know what I mean? They were in the heart of communities. I'd never really thought about starting what does it look like to start a new church? Why do we do it? What's the biblical reason? So he offered me an internship with him that I did. And then he offered me kind of an assistantship with him as I came out of um, ETS. And just through our discussion, I was like, I would like to do some more training. And he says, well, the best training in Edinburgh for this stuff is with Mez. Would you go to Nidri? And I was like, yeah. So Mez let me tag along to their kind of training um, for free just to sit in. I didn't really participate, I just got to know the lads. And at that time it was like Andy Prime, Pete Stewart, Pete Bell, Matheson. Um, I think that was it. There was, I think there was only five lads in the room at the time. It was, it was very early. We're talking like five, six years ago. Do you know what I mean? Uh, but man, it was amazing. Like their heart, their shield for it. Mez always kept saying to me, what are you doing in Morningside? You should be in 
you should be in like a, a scheme. Uh, and Shaba always <laughs> said that to me. She was on it all the time. So when I finished with uh, Neil at Cornerstone, which was great, um, Mez phoned me up and he says, have you heard of this place called Merkinch? And I was like, no. Nah. He says, it's up outside Inverness. And I was like, oh, the ferry. Because that's what it gets called locally. And he was like, yeah, there, there might be work there. Would you be interested? And I was like, yeah. So Met with Mez, came up with Met with Colin McLeod, who's the minister of the Free North, which is the kind of mother church of this place. And walked the streets and just loved it. It reminded me of cool. Reminded me of home. Reminded me of just like, guys that I grew up with, uh, guys that I worked with, like joiners, plumbers, electricians. Um, so then just like, all the doors just seemed to open for us coming here. Um, and we moved in three years ago um, to the man. So I'm actually in the church hall right now. Um, we don't have a pulpit, we have a pool table. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like the, the, the house is next door to this building. So we moved up here. Uh, three years ago. Awesome. Yeah. So, a, a big change from being in the city. You met Catherine, your wife there, is that right? Or yeah, you... yeah. <laughs> we are in my league. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same for me, brother, same for me. It's uh, That's, I suppose, the benefit of being a church planter, you get wives who will be out of your league. Isn't it? <laughs> I know. <laughs> <It's> compensation. <laughs> yeah, God's gracious. <laughs> <laughs> so, what happens is... Uh, you, I think, was it eight weeks after you were married you planted, or did you plant before getting married? How did that uh, we, I planted as we were planning to get married. Yeah. Uh, which I wouldn't advise anyone to do. <laughs> <laughs> You're sitting there one one night scratching your head about, like, uh, polity and kind of, like, what we're going to do and why we're going to do it and then the next night you're looking at a seating plan. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not good for your soul. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, awesome. So you've moved there. It's quite different from the city, uh, yeah. but similar to where you grew up as a boy. So what what, what are the blessings of being in, in a place like Merkinch? Uh, oh, there's loads. It's beautiful. It's friendly. So we're like, uh, the way I describe it to people is, if you know comic books or movies at all, it's uh, Merkinch and South Essex, okay, a diamond shape. And it's... Uh, it's an artificial island almost because Caledonian Canal cuts across one side. So it's a bit like Gotham City and Batman. You can only get to it through bridges. Mm -hmm. So it's quite isolated, but around it is the River Ness, the Caledonian Canal and the Bewley Firth. So you have all these beautiful views, like two minutes walk and you've got something wonderful to look at. And pluses as they're really friendly. Like people actually say hi to you. They like engage you. There's some banter like we have an intern through 20 schemes uh, called claire hall and she looks scottish like white skin ginger hair long ginger hair so the guys here call her the ginger ninja because she's quite quiet <laughs> as well <laughs> so uh, they're just like there's banter there's friendliness there's beauty it is very much a community yeah but obviously, the reason you've got there, you're involved with 20 Schemes, as much as the, the natural beauty and, and, and the community, there's obviously a, a great need there spiritually. Mm -hmm. uh, but also 20 Schemes, is, is, it's looking at deprivation uh, financially and, and, and uh, practically, isn't it, as well? So, so what are some of the, 
difficulties of living in a community like Merkinch? Yeah, I think it's it's very unique. So, like, the statistics on deprivation, you know, the, what's it, multiple deprivation index, that, that is, like, raw data, you know what I mean? Like, so, statistically, we're the eighth worst scheme in Scotland. We're, like, way up there for the population. Um, but, like, as the sense of that and the ground is, like, uh, poor health, like, either physically or mentally, uh, a lot of broken homes, as in single parents or um, basically people who don't live together but have kids and they have multiple kids to multiple people. So very intermeshed and messy kind of existence um, can happen. Uh, high, like, drink uh, use, like, uh, like bottles of whiskey, Bell's whiskey fly off the shelf in our community, uh, but also uh, a culture of drug use. Um, so yeah, there's like, I would say the statistics show kind of the clinical side of it, but like the, the spiritual side, I would say is there's like a, a, a undercurrent of hopelessness that I don't know, even know if people would be aware of in some sense, like this, this is it. Like there's nothing outside, um, Merkinch and Inverness, you know what I mean? as their world um like no point in getting a job you can just get your council house you know there's stuff like just that kind of there's no point in trying to do anything really which leads to this feeling of trapped you're trapped um and that's very difficult to minister in do you know what i mean the best bit of feedback we've ever had was from a lad in the scheme who says he walks around the ferry and meets people and they're all talking about who's died. Mm. Like, you know, uh, he comes in here and we're talking about who's alive. And he was meaning Jesus. I was like, that's, that's encouraging. Like someone who's an unbeliever noticing that contrast. Um, but it, it, yeah, it's beautiful, but paired with this uh, darkness of hopelessness. Mm. Yeah. And it, reminds me of, of the ministry that we're involved with in Middlesbrough and you, you get into ministry and when you're doing your training you talk about a lot about like dedications in your case <laughs> pedo yeah. baptism uh, uh, marriages uh, or adult baptisms and things like that very rarely do you talk about funerals that's probably last of the things that you do but I've done more funerals than 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 baptisms uh, I've done no weddings or dedications but I've done plenty of funerals and death is just a big characteristic of the community that, that we're working in. Uh, how, how have you found that? How have you found uh, dealing with death on, on a regular basis? Um, like, it's been really difficult. Like, I think the, the one that really, like, hurt the most was we had a guy who came to faith called Kevin. Mm. Um, and then Kevin... Um, like was growing in his faith. It was amazing to see just a, it's such a miracle when someone believes from death to life, right? From blindness to sight. Uh, it's just uh, when you see it and it's genuine and it's real, it knocks your socks off and it reminds you of how the Lord saved you. So it's, like, it's an encouragement to the whole church, I think. So he came to faith and then um, it was at Christmas time and Christmas time's always, I remember, Andy, Prime, and Mez, and all the lads talking about this. Christmas is just a tough season in a scheme. 
And what was the plan for him was his brother and his their kids were going to come and they were going to have Christmas together. But the brother pulled out kind of last minute. So Kevin just thought to himself, oh, I'll go to a couple of bottles of buck fast. But what happened was he'd been off it for a while. So his liver went into shock and he basically drunk himself uh, to death. Uh, and that was really difficult for the whole church family because you get excited about like, we're going to disciple this guy. God will see him come to faith. Maybe even put him into like ragged school and stuff like this. You know, you start to map it out. And then it's just a real loss. But it points to, again, I think, the continual battle of discipleship in the life of a believer. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, there, there, there's some thorns in the flesh that go deep, right? And we need to be there. So that was difficult. I think also coming out of seminary, um, just even how funeral, like, kind of, what does a funeral look like when you're in charge of it? Uh, it is kind of a simple question, but like one, like there's no map to it because it can look so different. So I, I basically uh, text a few lads to see if they could send me any resources. And one really good resource I got was the FIEC's kind of pastor's handbook, I think it is, or something like that. And it's got a great section on funerals, kind of maps it out a wee bit. But then what it doesn't tell you is when you get the family phoning you at midnight the night before, drunk, wanting to change everything. <laughs> like, who's doing the eulogy? What's happening? Like, uh, but it doesn't give you the kind of rawness and the realness of it. It's kind of a bit more clinical. Um, so that was a big learning curve. Um, I've learned things like, when you're going into a family's house and they're grieving, especially in the scheme, and there's multiple people uh, talking, I found that the best thing to do is just ask if I can record the conversation, you know, because like, there's so much coming at you. Everyone's telling you different stories at different times for the eulogy, and it, you can miss something that's important to someone. Yeah. And a kind of in a scheme context, you, you don't really get second chances with some guys. They're kind of graceless, so if they're left out, they're like you're the guy who missed them out in the funeral. Do you know what I mean? So I've learned to be kind of aware of like note taking and stuff like that. But yeah, I've done quite a few funerals. Um, the tough ones I think for me are the crematorium. It's just, it's like, yeah, 20 minutes yeah. for a life. You know what I mean? And if they want like an Elvis song or something like that, you know, Elvis went for four or five minutes. That's 15 minutes, you know. Everything sh shrinks down quite quickly. And it's just, it just feels kind of short changing someone at the end of their life in some way. Um, but it's difficult, especially now with COVID rules. It's been brutal doing anything like that. And what about training on, on, on ministering to people who are dying? Did you get any training on that? And, 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 and have you been, in one sense, that privileged position of being able to minister to somebody in the uh, final stages of life, but also harrowing at the same time? Yeah, so I think, uh, I think the challenge with like the theological kind of training side of these deeply practical things is that when you're sitting in a class and someone's talking about funerals and there's not really an essay or, or anything on it you kind of disregard it because you've got like a systematic paper to write or you know what I mean that takes 
precedent over anything else that's coming at you. So you listen, but you don't really take it in in the, the seriousness that it, it, it is for these things. That how, like, you know, when someone's passing away, even like a holding of a hand, which doesn't come naturally to me, is quite a big thing. Because yeah. um, it, it denotes presence. Learn, no one teaches you these things. You learn it as you go through. Um, I think that, yeah, I think these practical things, I would always encourage lads, and I think this is why training is ultimately super important to happen in the local church, is to shadow someone, mm, yeah. uh, to go with a pastor. Um, I remember going into a nursing home with a pastor, and he was like, now, Chris, this is a place where you pray with your eyes open. It's like, like you get some old lady with dementia trying to rugby tackle you. <laughs> you don't have your eyes open, you don't see her coming. <laughs> you know, stuff like, like just those wee subtle things. Um, I think happen as you draw alongside a local pastor. But you're adding, I'm only three years in, so my experience is very limited and very unique. You know what I mean? Yeah, and again, something that I, I, I was never prepared for. I didn't have the blessing of, of having a, a local pastor to, to serve under. Mm. Fortunately, my associate to serve with me, he's just done, he's doing a funeral now as we speak. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, this is his second and and prior to doing the funeral he he visited me visited families visited people on the deathbed with me and and, and then then after a couple of years he's, he's now doing it on his own but i think that was invaluable that time he just sent spent watching and 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 given the opportunity to to give input but not have the book stop with you i think the hardest thing for me is when i was stood there thinking right if it all goes pear-shaped it's it, it's my fault you sat there Worrying about what button do I press for the curtain? Do I press the button for the music? It's it's horrendous, and I think the fortunately for me, the first funeral I did was uh, for people who weren't members of the church and I didn't really know. Uh, and then there was a there was a pressure because you you're there to celebrate the life of, of this person. But when you're also emotionally impacted, when it's the life of a member and you're grieving yourself personally for that person, I was—I don't think I was ever prepared for for, for that pressure of of uh, for, for a member, somebody who's just got saved, saying to me, "Can you do my funeral?" And because you'd been given four weeks to live, that was something that really challenged me in my faith. Mm. And in in the ministry, that is so difficult. Anyway, we, we we've looked at. Uh, it, it's hard to reach people. It's hard to grow a church because people don't want to move to your area <laughs> and join your church to start with because it's isolated. It's hard uh, to, to reach people with the gospel because they're so in church. Some places people will be nominal Christians and come to church anyway just because that's what they do. But we don't even have that. Church is alien to people. So when you finally do see people converted and then because of the past lifestyle that they're dying because of either drug or drink abuse or whatever, having to minister somebody through, although they're forgiven, they've still got the consequences of the past lifestyle and, and then you're burying them. It, it, it took a toll on me that too. And also brought a cynicism into to, to my life where I just felt so defeated as in there's so much stacked against what we're doing, <laughs> what is even the point in being here? Would we be missed? How have you? You're only three years in. Does it take longer than that? Or have you ever f f felt that defeatism, that cynicism, that what are we actually 
Yeah. Less than our time for. I think my like my natural bent and it's a real worry for me is that I get angry at God more than like like because that's kind of been the pattern of my life in some ways. Yeah. Um, so like I really had to wrestle with that when Kevin passed because I'm like, what like I even remember saying, What are you playing at? Like like me saying that to God, how cheeky, how like I, I don't you know, very much like Job when God speaks, were you there when I created the earth? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that kind of like, who am I to see his wonderful design? But in that moment, it's just like, you know, you're, you're preaching over the coffin that's in front of you of someone that you minister to, who you saw new life in, and then they're gone. And like, you're like, you're, yeah, the question of would people know if we disappeared here in America? And what, you know, it's really, yeah, I think it's something that uh, I have to wrestle with as a planter quite uh, consistently and regularly is to not let bitterness uh, get a root in in ministry and that cynical nature of uh, they're not going to get saved. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's two, like, we have a guy who comes to our door every night uh, for a talk um, and it's like 10 minutes, he speaks at you. And you just look at him and you think, there's no way that you could get saved. Like his mental health, his history. Uh, I'm pretty sure he's uh, like an illegal immigrant because his name um, uh, is one clearly picked. <laughs> it's not like, you know, it was like Robert the Bruce, but yeah. without that, it's like Robert Bruce, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so he, um, but God can, right? That's me putting God in the box and saying, you can't do this. So it's the faithful endurance, uh, I think, through tears. I'll never forget when we've done, we've done a funeral and like up here, so many, so few people have church connections mm-hmm. that the minute you're doing a funeral, you're kind of doing everything. So my wife had to sing at a few funerals. So it's not just the toll on you, it's the toll on like your family as well and your church family. Because um, a lot of the church family did, struggle with the death of Kevin and just like guys who come like we had a young guy 27 came to our community group twice heard the gospel but was dead within a month of meetings mm. you know what I mean another guy came in just for bacon rolls chat really nice guy from the area and um, died of an overdose I think two weeks after we met him mm. and you're like <laughs> you're just sitting there like practically how do you how do you grow a church? How do you grow a leadership? How do you, how do you evangelize with an urgency, knowing that people might not be here next week? Mm. And that's like, that sounds crazy, but that's like all of us, right? I could drop dead tomorrow, but here, I think in our context, it's just far more fierce. It's far, you're more aware of it. Mm. Let's put it that way. You're just more aware of death everywhere you go. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I, I think for me, trusting that God is who he says he is in his word, that he is a father, that he's a good father. He's a father that can be trusted for ultimately your own good as well, as in, yes, things might hurt, but that hurt might lead to greater fruit. I have to believe that because that's what the Bible says. And just resting in that, even when I feel rocked to my very core, even angry. Um, But the beauty of the God that we worship is he invites us to come to him, right? 
you know, in Isaiah, come, let's reason together. Like, bring that to me. Like, you know, that's the kind of context. Bring your objections, bring your fears, let's reason them out. Uh, and that's a God I know and love. It's not distant, not uh, alienated, not removed, uh, but actually wanting me to come with my anger, pain, fears, uh, and work it out with him. Yeah, that, we might, I, I spoke with Matt Searles uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about the book he wrote on the Psalms and how uh, the Psalms encourage us to bring our emotions to God, that very thing, if we've got anger and often stuff we repress uh, or feel we shouldn't have emotions. We, God has created us as emotional beings, hasn't he? And yeah, although we might sin in how we respond to our emotions, mm. he's gracious and merciful with us, isn't he? And like you say, we can come to him and uh, yeah, get our anger out and, and, and then repent <laughs> and know his mercy and blessing. But, the emotions that, that you get in this type of ministry, like the, the majority of planters that I speak to involved in 20 schemes or in hard places, the areas where they're ministering, it's got some of the he worst health statistics, uh, especially uh, average life span of, of men and women are, are, are some of the lowest in the country. So death is, a, is a, real, a real thing that we have to deal with. And I think a complacency... So for me, I think after so long, you become complacent that death just happens. And although it can provoke an urgency in you, it can also you can just become a bit blasé yeah. with it as well. And, and it's real, really difficult. And I think sometimes I numb myself to it. I am an emotional person, <laughs> as you know, but I, I, I'm not a fan of it. So I try and stifle my emotions and, and almost become clinical to to these things. So what advice would you have to somebody? How, obviously, we, we need to be urgent, uh, but how, how do you avoid being just numbed and clinical to death when you see it on such a regular basis? Yeah, I don't know would be my answer. I think, like, you know, I'm only, only been in ministry five years, three years here. And I, I think the numbness, the, the so I would say I don't feel a numbness. I, I consciously choose to retreat mm. because in some ways looking at death so regularly is so brutal and it's hard. Mm. And as the Bible teaches, it's not natural, yeah. right? It's like, it's a consequence of sin. Like we all assume it's natural, but it's not. Even the pain and the grief that we feel, like even if you're an unbeliever, yeah. points to that this is wrong. That's why a lot of people say this it shouldn't happen. Because it shouldn't. It's mm. a consequence of sin. So I think naturally we withdraw from that mm. everywhere. Even the believers, uh, I think in churches, do it as well. It's really difficult to hold yourself open and vulnerable to that every time. Mm. And I don't know if I could. Like Psychologically, I don't know if I could would be the answer. I don't think I'm that strong. Uh, and I'm less emotional. Like uh, I, I would say... My wife feels more in three hours in the morning than I have most of my life. <laughs> I'm quite like a flat line, I think. Um, but there are times where you're just like, just so moved by the brokenness around you, the wailings of a mum who's lost a, a child, you know, the, the, the brothers and sisters that you go around to see and 
their proper values to kind of just numb themselves to the pain because it's too much for them. Mm. You know what I mean? You, you see it everywhere. And I think, I think I sometimes just emotionally retreat and I don't know if that's good or bad, but sometimes it's just, I have to, it's been a heavy week. Mm. I'll process it later. Do you know what I mean? But in that moment, I have to somehow remove myself. And sometimes I just pray like in that moment, Lord, give me the strength, give me like, Wisdom, I think wisdom is like my church family probably are sick of me banging on about wisdom. But the the longer I'm in scheme ministry, the more I feel a fool. <laughs> the best way to describe it, um, and I, like the, the way I feel sometimes foolish is should I give someone another chance? Mm. Are they taking the mick? Like we're we're like you know where is the line? What do we do? in situations that I just am often like a fish out of water. So, um, and, and then that promotes an unhealthy kind of biblicism within me. What I mean by that is I search the scriptures for answers mm. rather than seeking Jesus and like waiting on him. You know, like I'm reading Proverbs and I'm like, this is supposed to be wisdom literature. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Give me an answer to this pastoral situation. <laughs> Um, but sometimes the harder thing is journeying it, right? Journeying these emotions, journeying these experiences and coming out of them a wee bit bashed, but ho hopefully a wee bit more Christ-like. Um, I think it's Peter that writes, we shouldn't be surprised by suffering. Yeah. And the word he uses there, surprise, is really interesting because it's like, it often does come as surprise to us, doesn't it? Mm. Like, it shocks us a wee bit, but actually... You know, as part of the call of discipleship, pick up your cross and follow me. That's not an easy call. Uh, but just throughout um, Christianity, you do see this drive for comfort, for security. And actually, that's not, that's not to be expected here now. Like, I'm quite aware, and I think, like, you've experienced this too, Ian. This church plan could fail. It could fail. That's, there's nothing of me in that. It's just a reality of, like, the world we live in we're under resourced like like you said christians don't generally move into our areas to serve and um, there is a tide of death drug use and brokenness right outside your doorstep and um, it would be so easily this just to fizzle out but by the grace of god we're sustained and we shouldn't be surprised in the sufferings we experience as we try and plant a church um, but it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. That's the best way to do it. And again, I think for me, what has helped keep me going is, is even if the church plant fails, those people that we've ministered to uh, who are no longer with us uh, are in glory. And yeah. uh, we might not have plenty of people sat on our pews, but Praise the Lord, there's people sat in his presence right now waiting until yeah. Jesus returns and we join them. So, yeah, again, I think that mindset of reminding ourselves that, you know what, life is short, and I think that is the reason why we're here, to preach mm -hmm. the gospel, to show that, uh, yeah, that there is an eternal life out there that is, <laughs> yeah. is, is something that can bring these communities hope, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah, and, and again, I'm hoping, even though we discuss difficult subjects, I'm hoping to end each subject on a high. And, yeah. 
might be the wrong guy you're speaking to then. <laughs> but it's definitely a reality for, for me. Within COVID, this last year has been horrendous. My, my uncle's just died. It's late 50s, a fireman, cycled 20 miles, fit, fitter mm. than me. BMI, far better than me. Do you know what I mean? This guy was naturally fit. And, and for the last four months, oh, as soon as the sanctions lifted, we'll meet for a pint and I could have sat in his garden or he was an unbeliever. Do you know what I mean? I had opportunity after opportunity, but sometimes you wait for a more comfortable opportunity yeah. than is needed, isn't it? And I think that's uh, probably one of the dangers for me is my nana died mm. just a few weeks ago, but she was 80 odd year old with cancer. We were expecting that. So you made the effort. I think it's these deaths that shake you up, the the babies or the 27-year-old or the young fit man who just dies in his sleep. We, we, we have an urgency, don't we? Whatever context we're in, whether it's... We, we live in an area of uh, low life expectancy through drink and drug abuse, but our life expectancy is in the hand of God, isn't it? All mm. of us are on borrowed time. <laughs> and whatever context we're ministering into, we should be having that urgency to preach the gospel. So how can you manage, just before we go, is how do you manage that urgency to to, to preach the gospel uh, and take every opportunity without having the guilt of when somebody does pass away, thinking, I wish, mm. I wish I told them about Jesus one more time or I wish I'd have made more of an effort. Uh, yeah, I'm, maybe I'm just, uh, don't want to sound like a geek, but I'm, I would say I'm classically reformed, the sovereignty of God in the election mm. of his people. Like God, the, God is ultimately the one who seeks and saves, mm. not Chris Davidson, not the American Free Church. Mm. Um, we are tools, we are instruments of his will and his providence. He uses broken people like us. But like, you know, if I get up, like Brian Croft, the, you know, Brian Croft writes the, yeah practical uh, uh, shepherding books he's awesome because he's just like he's very real in the way he speaks about ministry mm. so you know like it's not like you know you're in your study for uh, monday tuesday wednesday bashing out this amazing sermon he's like sometimes his tweets go out pastors and it's saturday night if you're still working on your sermon trust the lord do you know what i mean and there's some days like that so you get up to preach and you're like man this is rubbish <laughs> you know but god can use it like you know so i think yeah yeah it's difficult man i think ministry ultimately is a great privilege but tr i think for me it's just trusting the character of god with everything and especially with who i am so when we preach that's what i'm preaching come see jesus see this man uh, like, see what he's doing and what he's saying about himself. Because if Jesus is true to his word, it is super important for your life. It will change your life uh, and it will change you. Um, so really, we've, we have a high focus in our preaching and responding to the character of Jesus Christ, who he proclaims to be, who Paul and Peter and James all describe what he's done and why he's done it. Do you know what I mean? Uh, keep it kind of like that. And as we go, build these blocks up. Um, so right now we're going through John's gospel, and that's kind of the big question, isn't it? The end of John chapter 7, uh, the crowd are saying, 
if he's not the Christ, would the Christ that comes do more than he's already doing? Do you know what I mean? Like, this guy fits the bill of a savior, of a redeemer. What else are we looking for? And that's a great question to ask people. What, what are you actually looking for in a God, in a savior, in someone? Because I bet Jesus would fit that bill and, and give you hope, ultimately. So that's kind of the way we preach. Well, I hope that's the way we preach. <laughs> now I'm going to go on YouTube and delete all my sermons. So no <laughs> I've already done that. <laughs> awesome. The sad thing is, all the sermons they had on YouTube were the ones I thought there were good ones anyway. <laughs> there was even worse ones that I haven't put on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Oh, awesome, Chris. It's been awesome spending time with you, and uh, hopefully, I'll get myself up to Merkinch at some point. Uh, yeah, I'll probably have to come up with just me and the missus, <laughs> but <laughs> then we'll definitely get there. But Chris, it's been uh, wonderful spending time with you, and I hope to see you soon, mate. Yeah. God bless you, and thanks. God bless, mate. Cheers. Bye bye.